All right, today uh, I really hope to finish this series that we've been in called Tending the Lamps. We took a break last week for Mother's Day where uh, my beautiful wife uh, preached a phenomenal message. Didn't she do so awesome last week? And isn't she so polite and womanlike? And, you know, she was like, okay, I'm going to step on your toes. All right. And she stepped on your toes, but she gave you a heads up so you could step back a little bit and brace yourself. And I don't do that. I just come in there like a bull and I stomp on your toes and move on, you know. And so I love what she spoke last week. If you missed it, you really do need to go listen to that message. It was phenomenal. I told her, I was like, that was like a five course buffet of the word of God. And it was powerful, powerful, powerful. I listened to it both services and was so blessed. And so uh, today we're going to finish this series called Tending the Lamps. And we talked about a few weeks ago how the Old Testament in Exodus 27 and Leviticus 24, there's a command to the priests that they should tend the lamps in the temple continually. This was the Old Testament menorah. Menorah is just the Hebrew word for lampstand that was in the temple. It looks something like this. I think we have a picture. Um, And it was five and a half feet tall. It was one lampstand, but there were seven lights or fires, oil lamps on on top. And they were to keep this burning 24-7, 365. It was to never go out which meant they were to constantly fill it with oil and trim the wicks. And we talked about how that prophesies into our spiritual lives with Jesus. This all has spiritual meaning. And so if you missed those messages, go listen to that. We talked about what it, was, what it meant the first two weeks of this series for us to tend the lamps. Today, I wanna talk to you about one last story in scripture uh, in Revelation where Jesus is actually tending to his lamps. And this picture is used, again, a prophetic metaphor, uh, but it's a spiritual reality. And we want to talk about this today. And so Revelation chapter one, I'm going to dive right in and read verses nine through 20. John is receiving a revelation from the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, I, John, this is the apostle John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Everybody say seven churches. These are the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey in the Roman empire at that time, they called it Asia. And he says, I want you to send what you're about to see and what you're about to receive to these seven churches. And he names them Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He looked like a human being in form is what he's saying. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
John has this powerful vision of Jesus. He's in the spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is empowering him, giving him a vision, and it overwhelms him to the point that he just falls down. And it's like he's, he's just laying there. Sometimes that happens. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. This is Jesus, of course. Verse 19, write therefore what you have seen and now what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and I'm rolling up my sleeves because I'm just reading loud. I haven't even started preaching yet. Y'all better get ready. <laughs> the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. He's about to unpack this for him. The seven stars are the seven angels. You have to understand this is the Greek word angelos. It literally just means messengers. The literal translation are the seven messengers. Most scholars believe these were seven leaders, speakers, pastors of these seven churches. The seven stars are the seven preachers, the seven pastors of overseers of these churches, okay? And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he sees a vision of Jesus and it looks something like this. I think we have a picture and, and I apologize. This is like the only decent artist rendering I could find. Uh, and, and this is, it was kind of small. So the, the uh, I'm apologizing for the resolution. Anyways, um, my kids are like, sometimes like, what's SD? There it is. Okay, there it is. So this is Jesus. This is somewhat might, what it might've looked like. Only the lampstands were probably spread out on the ground. He's walking among them. He's got seven stars in his right hand. A sword is coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And these seven stars are seven messengers or preachers, pastors. I think it's double meaning. I think that there's most likely an angel assigned to each church as well. There's angels assigned to people. Amen. And so uh, that, that is far within the realm of possibility. And there are, these are seven leaders and he tells him to write what you're about to hear to these seven people. And what he's about to do, these, these are the letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And the letters follow a pattern. And I'm going to read this, these, these letters to these churches. And you'll notice this pattern. Jesus introduces himself with a different title, a different description, unique to each church. There's a specific encouragement to most of the churches, except for one. <laughs> There's a rebuke. He's saying, I see that you're doing some good things. I also see that there's some things that aren't good. And he kind of rebukes them for that. There's a call to repent, which means to turn away from the not good things, to get back on track and to live how he wants them to live in, in its fullness. And then there's an offer of reward. And he describes a different reward for each church. And it starts with this, to the one who is victorious. And these rewards are eternal rewards. They're different pictures of what we are going to receive in heaven. And so that's the pattern that it follows. And what's interesting is Jesus is encouraging these churches. But as I said, he's also calling out things that aren't good. What is Jesus doing among these lampstands? He's tending the lamps 
of his churches. Jesus wants his churches shining brightly. And if these uh, were actual, the, the, the lampstand like the menorah that had seven lights, I think that's significant. God wants his whole, the fullness of his Holy Spirit represented in every church. He wants everyone using all the gifts of the Spirit so that, so that we have lampstands as a church that have seven lights burning brightly. That we, that we represent the fullness of God. He doesn't want a lampstand with like half the lights out. Why? Because the church is Jesus' plan A in a given community, and there is no plan B. Jesus is the hope of the world. We are his body on the earth. We are his ambassadors, as if God was making his appeal through us because he is making his appeal through us. And so if we don't shine brightly in our personal lives, which we've talked about over the last few weeks, but if we don't shine brightly together, if we don't work together and get this right, the lamp of our church will not shine brightly in our community, which means our community will be very spiritually and morally dark. And so America is very spiritually and morally dark right now. Why is that? Because so many churches are going through the motions of church, but they don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They're not walking in repentance. They're like some of these churches that they have things in them that are not good. And they're so bad that Jesus says a few times, if you keep going, I'm going to remove the lampstand from you. Which means I'm going to disband your church. I'm gonna, you're going to close your door. Stuff's going to go bad. And you're going to think it's the devil, but it's really just me pulling back. And it's, it's actually you giving the devil place in your church. And so the lights are already going out and I'm just gonna go, let's just kill this thing. I'll start over with someone else. That doesn't mean the individuals who really knew him would lose their salvation. It means I'm gonna dismiss this church because it's not being effective. Why is that? Because in discipleship, we reproduce what we are. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. And so many churches are going, follow my example. And I know the Bible says this, but really here's what I think God's like. And he's really okay with that in your life. He's really okay if, if you think sexual morality is, is, is what the culture says, not what scripture says. He's really okay if you think abortion is health care. He's really okay with all that. He's okay. And we make Christianity in our own image what we think. It's like we make a golden calf, but we call it Yahweh. And they made a golden calf in the Old Testament and go, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Now, why did they do that? It says when they did that, they got up to indulge in revelry, which means get drunk and sleep around. See, when you make up who God is, you get to define the rules. You get to define morality. You get to justify your sin. So isn't it convenient? I'm forgiven for everything. I get to go to heaven and I don't have to change and I can live like the devil here, but still get to go to heaven. Jesus didn't die for your sin so that you could still live in it. A.W. Tozer said, the, God doesn't put the Holy Spirit in anybody and then let them live like a sinful human being. If you have the Holy Spirit in you and you live in sin, you will be a... <laughs> you will be a person who struggles. Cognitive dissonance is the psychological term. 
you will be at war with yourself. And that war will only cease when you fight the final battle and surrender to Jesus. Giving in to Jesus is the final fight. And then you do that every day. And if you surrender to Jesus, Lord of all, you win. And so if we call, so many churches in America especially are all about let's reach people. Let's reach people. And then they say, follow my example. And their example is really a golden calf. And Jesus is going to call some of that out in these early churches even. This is first century still. Why does he do that? Because he knows if we call people to follow our example, but it's not his example, then it's idolatry. It's a false god, even though they're calling it Jesus. It's a golden calf called Jesus instead of a golden calf called Yahweh. And he knows it's going to give false assurance to people. And he knows when they stand before him on judgment day and he'll go, how do you plead? And they'll go, golden calf. And he'll go, that ain't me. That ain't the blood. Away from me. I never knew you. And so because he loves them, he calls them out. Amen. And so this is new covenant, New Testament Christianity. These are the words of him who is faithful and true. These are the words of Jesus. And I want to walk through these. It's a bit ambitious today, but we're going to walk through each church. And here's the deal. There's seven churches. These, rep, these were actual seven physical churches at this time in history. That's the first meaning. Second layer of meaning. Uh, these are churches that have existed all through history at different times in different places. You could apply it that way. Another layer of meaning is these are seven types of individuals that exist in different churches. And then another layer of meaning, which is just fascinating, is these also, the number seven is the number of completion in scripture. These represent seven church ages or eras down through history. When you take the meaning in the original language of each word of each church, it prophesies into the era and history that this church age existed. And you'll see that as I walk through it. And I'm going to talk about that as we walk through this. And I'm going to do a lot of teaching through this, but then I'm going to prophesy what it means. Amen. All right. So teaching and then we'll prophesy, prophesy, meaning this is what it means for us today. All right. So Revelation chapter two, this is what he tells him to write to these seven churches. It says this, this is the first church, Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, for you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans followed a disciple of Jesus named Nicholas who said sexual immorality is actually okay. And let's follow Jesus and you can do whatever you want sexually. Jesus, does that sound familiar in our culture today? And Jesus, Jesus, new covenant, not Old Testament. Jesus, our Lord, the one you say is your Lord and Savior says, I hate the practices. Notice he doesn't hate the people. He hates the practices of those people. If he hated the practices of some people in first century, 
How many of you know he hates the practices of some people here today? And you, if you, <laughs> our culture has Pride Month coming up where they celebrate the practices that is <sighs> ruining our culture. And I don't say that because of LGBTQ. I say that because when we accept that, it puts morality, the judgment of morality on the individual so that now we have children in schools who think they're furries. We have children who think they're animals and the schools are going, oh, don't tell them they're wrong. Put a litter box in the bathroom. Yes, this is happening in local schools. Litter boxes in the bathrooms. This is what happens when you mess with God's standards. One of the, oh, one of the scariest forms of God's judgment, just read Romans chapter one. One of the scariest forms of God's judgment is not a hammer that he hits you with. It's not a lightning bolt. It's God going, oh, you want that? Okay, go for it. He lets you experience the fruit of your ways. And that's what's happening in America right now. That's why it's getting stupid. And I'll call it stupid. It's foolishness. I have a lot more to get through, so that's all I'm gonna say on that. Jesus hates it because it, it hurts people. We don't hate those people who struggle with sexual tendencies. We don't hate people who, who struggle with conf gender confusion. We don't hate people who are so confused they think they're an animal and they actually believe it. I feel a deep compassion for them. But Jesus showed me a few months ago, I was praying about some of this stuff and Christians I know that'll be like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, oh, I, oh that's fine. Just, just Jesus forgive you. Just believe in Jesus. But I'll never tell you that's wrong or that's not good. That's comforting. That's not comforting the person. That's comforting their stronghold. And the way God showed me is, and I'll just tell you this, in this church, in good conscience, I'll, I'll comfort your spirit, but I can't comfort your stronghold. Because if I comfort you, your stronghold, that is like comforting a demon in your life. <laughs> and, and, and you'll stay, you'll not only stay in sin, you'll stay in bondage you'll stay in that confusion and that will harm your life in a myriad of ways and then that will harm relationships and culture and society and I'm not about speaking about these things for political reasons to get you to vote a certain way so that I personally can feel comfortable in America because it's like me no these are moral issues and I'm this thing called a preacher and I'm supposed to speak the truth of God's word on moral issues. And the reason America's in the place it's in is not because of sinful people. It's because of preachers who don't have a backbone to preach the word of God. And they bow at the throne of the fear of man. God help us. America will be judged if pastors and preachers don't wake up and start preaching the truth from a place of compassion. Go read the Old Testament. That's why Israel was judged. And who did God blame? The prophets and the priests who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They were comforting the idolatry. 
You just stay in it. I can't do it. I will stand before God. And if someone's in sin and I, as his representative, don't tell them that's sin, you need to get out. God will hold me accountable. It's in Ezekiel. And I believe, Paul believed, that was true for us New Covenant preachers. Because he said, when he was leaving, when he was peacing out in, in Acts, he was like, hey, I want you to know, I, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What did he mean by that? Go read Ezekiel. He was a watchman. I'm responsible to preach the full word of God. Not just the nice, encouraging verses that make you feel good. Whoo! Jesus. Where were we? That wasn't in the notes. Whoever has ears, verse 7, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He already said it. (laughs) To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life who is in the paradise of God. Oh, my dear goodness. There is no way. Okay. (laughs) Ephesus means desired one. That's what the word Ephesus means. This is the church of the first century from about 30 to 100 AD. The early church was characterized by zeal and devotion to Christ. He was the desire of their hearts. The early church was on fire for Jesus. Rapid evangelism. Christianity spread all over the known world in the first century. All right? And yet they had forsaken their, the love. He said, they were high on truth. They were so zealous for Jesus and yet they were losing their love. Here's the takeaway from this church for us today. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. The temptation of churches and people that are intensely zealous for Christ is they, become, they can become all truth and no grace and lose their love for those they're called to reach. And therefore, instead of being witnesses to the world, they become judges of it. They forget that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And it's God's love that draws us. So you move to a knowledge that puffs up instead of a love that builds up. Love for God keeps us loving the truth and love for people keeps our hearts soft so that we remain a friend of sinners and a hospital for the sick so the broken and hurting still want to darken our doors so God can illuminate theirs. Amen? Church number two, the church in Smyrna says this, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of whom who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews or not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, uh, will, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So the word Smyrna means bitter. And this period of church history lasted from about 54 or so AD to about 300 or 312 AD, where the church experienced intense, bitter persecution under the Roman Empire. Many church people, Christians, were put in prison. Many of them were executed and killed for their faith. And notice how Jesus addresses this church that's suffering intense persecution. I'm the one who was killed too, and I rose from the dead, and I'm alive. And here's his reward for for those who are suffering persecution to death. Stay faithful to death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And the, the second death, that's eternal judgment when you're thrown in the lake of fire if you don't believe in Jesus. 
It won't hurt you at all. So here's the takeaway. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. When you suffer persecution from God or devils, the temptation is to get so discouraged that you give up on the faith altogether. Notice Jesus doesn't deny this hardship, but his exhortation is stay faithful even unto death. When you suffer for doing what's right, stay faithful, knowing there's a reward that is greater than your suffering. As Jesus said another place, don't fear those who can kill your body and after that do nothing, but rather fear the one who can kill your body and then throw your soul into hell. His message is stay faithful because it's worth it. Jesus is worth even suffering death if that's what your faith costs you because your reward is eternal life. How much more if what your faith costs you is a few friendships or if people don't like you very much or they think you go to that weird church that actually preaches the fullness of truth and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. How much more should we be faithful and be like, man, you can think what you want. (laughs) But all I know is they preach the truth. They're full of grace and love. And man, the Holy Spirit moves in power. That's all I know. I wanna be a church and we are striving to be a church that is uncompromising when it comes to truth, that is unconditional when it comes to love, and that's undoubtedly full of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus wants in his church. That's who we are. The third church, the church of Pergamum, Verse 12, it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Man, heaven's going to be cool getting a white stone with a new name and put that on your shelf in your mansion. You're like, man, that's my name. That's awesome. Pergamum. The meaning of the word Pergamum means marriage or elevated. This represents the church age from about 312 to about 607, the early 600s. In 312 AD or CE, as they're saying now, Constantine, the emperor Constantine, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, thereby marrying the church to the state and elevating the status of Christians in the church from second class persecuted to like the the church, like to being elevated in society. However, this marriage was not altogether good because idolatry started being mixed with the Christian faith. For example, in 375, the worship of angels and saints was introduced In 525, last rites were introduced. Just read this over them and they'll go to heaven. Doesn't require faith and repentance. Not a biblical doctrine, okay? 
593, the doctrine of purgatory was introduced. Again, not a, a biblical doctrine. The thought that you could, well, you know, just live how you want and you'll work it off in purgatory. No, it is appointed that a man will die once and face the judgment. There's no purgatory, all right? And these things were introduced. These, this is him talking about false teachings like Balak, uh, Balaam enticing the, the Balak and the Israelites to, to commit sexual morality and other things, right? He says, repent or I'll fight against you with the sword from my mouth, which is the word of God in scriptures. It's pretty bad when Jesus has to fight against a church and a pastor <laughs> with scripture because <laughs> they're so far off. He's like, uh, actually, the Bible says this. <laughs> And that's what he's saying. I'll fight against you. It's pride. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we in our pride go, well, I know the Bible says that, but I just think, I think there's a purgatory and I think we can pray to saints and angels and all this others. Who told you that? The Bible? Where'd you get that? No, no, we can't do that. Jesus says repent or he'll fight against you with the word and he will humble you. The takeaway, the temptation of churches and Christians who have high influence and power in their communities and relationships or at their workplaces is to compromise their faith in order to maintain good status and standing with worldly positions, power, and wealth. To affirm and agree with cultural ideologies and idolatries just so worldly people think well of us. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we must choose good standing with God, even if it means losing our positions in the world and casts us into a fiery furnace of affliction. But we can do so knowing there will be another in the fire, and man, we'll come out not even smelling like smoke. The, the word stand Matt Luke gave right here a few minutes ago, that is a word for this time, this place, for the people of God, especially in America in this season. It's time to stand for what God stands for. It's time to stop being ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for those who believe. It's time to stop being ashamed of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we know things that the culture doesn't know, like all oh, that mental illness, you know, sometimes it's a brain thing, but that one right there, that's demonic. Demons are real. And when they go, oh, I know I've seen them. Well, guess what else is real? Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I take authority over every demonic influence in this place. I break it off the lives of these people. I bind it up and I cast it out. In Jesus name. And some of you feel free when you come to church, but then you walk out and you don't feel free. Why is that? Because you get free because of our anointing, because of our faith because of me praying for you, because of Ruth praying for you, because of our team praying for you. And when you walk out, you go back to believing the same lies. And the devil goes, yeah, but you know, this, 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 and this. Yeah, but it's, you're not like him. Yeah, but you didn't grow up in church. And you go, you're right, you're right, you're right. And you put the chains back on. That's your problem. You gotta walk in it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Persevere, church, stand. Number four, the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, 
Right. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Listen to this. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I, Jesus is saying this, he will do this to a real person and to people who practice these things. I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. We need more fear of God in American church. I can't comfort your strongholds anymore. I can't coddle your sin. You must repent or Jesus will discipline you. That's fear of God. You need the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. What is it? The hatred of evil. You need to hate your sin. Don't hate yourself. Oh, what's the point? I've already messed up. That's the devil. What's the point? Jesus died for you on a cross and he paid for it so you go to heaven. That's the point. I might explode preaching today. We're here for it. <laughs> That'll be cool. Somebody TikTok it. My, my preacher just blew up. I hope he's in heaven. He's gone. He ain't here. <laughs> Jesus, where was I? I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. Listen to this. I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This woman has a higher punishment. She was claiming to be a leader in the church. That's a higher responsibility. That's higher influence. So she's going to get a higher judgment. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you, Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on you any other burden except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end. I'll do his will to, to see if it works. I'll do his will to see if he's going to take my problems away. Oh, he didn't take my problems away. Never mind. I'm not in it for this. Oh, so you were just in it for the blessings. You were just in it for the gifts. You weren't in it for Jesus. You weren't in it for heaven. You just were in it for a better life here. <laughs> That's idolatry. He who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I receive authority from my father, I also will give that one the morning star. You know what that means? I have no idea, but I'm sure it's awesome. <laughs> Whoever has ears, you're going to get a white stone with a name on it. You're going to get a star. Get your own star. I don't, okay. Jonas probably knows what it means. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira, the word means continual sacrifice. It was a period known as the Dark Ages in, in history from about 607 to 1520. And unfortunately, some churches are still living in those Dark Ages. The name for shadows, some kind of sacrifice that's not good in the sense that it's continual. 
And that's not good because Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. This is the woman Jezebel, a spiritual influence that caused them to believe a false teaching. It steeps them in immorality and keeps them in bondage to continual sacrifice to idols in their day and age. Interestingly, the period, what we've come to call the Dark Ages, and the teaching of the selling of indulgences in addition to the other heretical teachings was introduced to this period. Literally, oh, you want to go to heaven? Give me money. I don't know if there's anything more offensive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He paid with his blood. The only way you get there is by grace. That's what he did. Through faith, that's you receiving it, believing it, following him, submitting your life to his lordship. has nothing to do with money. And so that was introduced in 1190 AD, and this propagated a continual sacrifice to the idol and false teaching that you had to pay money to be saved. (laughs) So his encouragement to those not participating in this idolatry is just hold on because deliverance is coming. The takeaway is this. Let those who have ears hear what the Spirit says. The longer you've been enslaved in a continual sacrifice church culture of idolatry, the long, longer periods of compromise, of traditions that aren't of God, the more difficult it is to stand and break away or come out because the longer you're in it, the greater the stronghold. I'm sure this doesn't apply to any churches today. The longer you're in it, the longer you compromise, the more courage it will take to rise up and come out of it, the more division it will cause in relationships. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace where there is no peace. I came to bring a sword that will even divide households if that's what it takes to separate us from those who compromise and set us free from their strongholds. You know, they're called strongholds for a reason. They're not called weak holds or easy holds. And that's why his rebuke is so strong, because it takes a lot of the fear of the Lord to motivate you to stop fearing man and to come out. So we have to be strong and courageous like Joshua. (laughs) Cut down the idols in our father's house like Gideon. Slay the giants like David if we want to live as free people in the promised land of our God. And we have to realize these giants of legalism, traditionalism, false teaching, they masquerade, masquerade as angels of light. And when you break from people who agree with them, they'll tell you that you're not right. You're not right with God. You're going to, oh, it's going to be bad. Oh, wrong translation of the Bible. I don't know. It's not the word of God. Whoop, 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 whoop. Music's too loud. Oh, the devil plays drums. Who, who, where? Does it say that in scripture? The devil plays drums? Really? The King James says that? I read the King James. I didn't see that. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I do need help. <laughs> the fifth church, starting in Revelation chapter 3, to the angel in the, of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. 
Strengthen what remains is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. There are some people here, when I've raised my voice today and spoken against cultural ideologies, your hearts went, mm, I don't like to see, ooh, he's judgmental. Ooh, I don't like that. You know what that is? The devil's, go that siren is singing his song. Back to sleep, back to sleep, little idolater. <laughs> and the Lord, man, I didn't plan on getting up here and yelling, but the Lord's like, wake him up. Because if they don't, I will come like a thief. And they won't know when I'm coming because they're asleep. You won't be ready for Christ's return. That's what he's saying. Yet there's a few of you in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. The word Sardis means coming out or escaping ones. This church period started in around 1520 with the great reformation of Martin Luther when he led many people out of a very corrupt church culture. It lasted through the 1700s. Many escaped or came out of what is now called the Catholic Church because that was the church in power at that time. They started new churches not under the authority of the Catholic Church but had a focus on the authority of Scripture and a personal saving faith relationship with Jesus that involved personal repentance and holiness. Eventually, even the Puritan Christians came out of Europe and started a, a, a new place to worship in freedom here in the Americas during that time period. Yet many denominations split off and stood in pride against one another, each believing they were the only right way to God. And so they start to plunge themselves back into erroneous teaching and strongholds. Uh, it just has a different name and a different belief attached to it. The takeaway, the temptation of those who've come out of old erroneous systems to start new works or new churches is to want to be so different from the previous thing that was so corrupt that they distanced themselves from even the gospel itself. <laughs> they throw the baby out with the bathwater so they can base a lot of their work for God on human wisdom and the pride of life instead of being a true work led by the Spirit. Their motivation can become avoiding what they're against rather than promoting what they're for and what God is for. In our day, you see this a lot. You can do a lot of good for God and it's done well and it's impressive. They have a reputation of being alive by the standards of excellence of the culture. But in reality, they're spiritually dead because their motives are really just to impress people, to reach them, to have them come to church rather than <laughs> to preach the gospel to save them. Whew. You can do a lot for God without even knowing his heart. We must learn to abide and let our doing for God flow from our being with God. Otherwise, we risk being a very leafy plant with no fruit, and our activity will look impressive. Our services may be impressive or might even have a lot of people there, but in, if there's really not much spiritual fruit in people's lives, then we're just building with wood, hay, and straw that will be burned up in the end. The sixth church, Philadelphia, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, the, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, 
I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Wow, what a, what a promise. Protection in the midst of judgment. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. And I'll also write on them my new name. We're getting tattoos in heaven. Jesus is a tattoo artist. He's going to write. That's awesome. Unless you're offended by tattoos. Verse 13, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. This church period was characterized from around 1720 to the 1950s or so. And this involved lessening persecution and judgment, more freedom in the church because of the different denominations coming together. Um, and and it, it characterized many great Holy Spirit revivals, really the greatest ones in history since Pentecost itself including the Moravians, the First and Second Great Awakenings in America, the Welsh Revival, Azusa Street, and so on. This is the only other church other than Smyrna, which was the one under heavy persecution, that doesn't receive a rebuke. The open door, I believe, is an open heaven where there's an outpouring of the Spirit resulting in major spiritual revival and renewal. These are not just faithful believers, but faithful churches that usher in true corporate revival. And in this revival spirit, denominational lines fall away. Brotherly love, kingdom unity results in the brotherly love and the kingdom unity. And the result is that all men will know his disciples and a great revival comes about. The takeaway, there's no warning for faithful believers who continually walk in the spirit and therefore experience an outpouring in revival. And I, and I want to I pause right here. When we were at that conference a few months ago, and I got really whew, immersed in the Spirit in a mighty way, I believe it was the next, it was either that morning or the next morning, I read this in my devotion, and the Lord said, this is for you today. And I read that line, I've set up door, open door before you, and no one can shut it. There's no warning for these believers But these burning ones do suffer intense criticism, accusation, and persecution from other so-called believers who accuse them of not being of God. This makes them struggle with doubt and fear at times, wondering if perhaps they're wrong or if God is going to come through because they are so totally dependent on him that Jesus is their plan A and they don't have a plan B. So Jesus says, keep going. You have an open door before you, and no one's going to be able to shut it. I'm going to pour out my spirit. It is not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of God, he says. And there's an encouragement that God will vindicate you. And the very people who accused you and made you doubt your calling and your gifts, who in their pride said they were right with God and you were not, God will make them come and bow before you and admit, I love this, that he loves you. Not even that you were right. It's way greater than that. 
but you were right because you were loved, that you loved him, and what they criticized you for was actually his favor on your life. The very things they said weren't God, were God. (laughs) Which not only humbles them before you, but before God, fully proving to them and everyone else that not only were you on God's side, but God himself was on your side. I don't know about you, but I want to be a Philadelphian. (laughs) One who walks in revivals in tune with the spirit, who has no rebuke from my Lord, (laughs) because I'm constantly being attentive to what he desires. That's how I want to live. But we got one more church to go through. And interestingly, this next church receives no positive encouragement. It's the only one. It's the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, the word means people's opinions. People's opinions. It's characterized the church period in history, I believe, from the 1960s or so to present that will continue to the return of Christ. The city of Laodicea was quite wealthy and affluent. Uh, It was very rich, and therefore it was very poor in faith because they were buying into the deceitfulness of wealth, which Jesus talked about elsewhere. And in this period of history, technological advances, science, materialism has increased to where, man, not just America, there's many affluent, wealthy cultures across the world now that you couldn't have imagined even a hundred years ago. And because of our wealth and affluence, it deceives us thinking that we actually don't need God as much. And that's why he says, you say, you think you have all you want, but you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You actually don't even have true faith. That's the gold refined in the fire. And so you see a period in church history where Jesus is so displeased. He has no encouragement. In fact, he basically says, you make me want to vomit. Now, why is that? People's opinions. Because they're so affluent, it affords them (laughs) to follow their opinions rather than God. And to look at culture and go, I like that. I like that. I like that. They make that golden calf. They call it God. And then they live comfortable lives, so they don't really need to seek God for anything. And Jesus says, you need to repent. And I'm not going to go over the takeaway for us, because I believe our student pastor, Jamie, is going to preach on this, most likely in a few weeks. 
there's this interesting phrase. All and all seven repeated every single time. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church is plural. So this was read in every church on the list, but he's saying, I want every church, even though this letter is to you, or maybe this church feels like your church, I want you to hear what I'm saying to all the churches. Why? To the one who is victorious. I will not stand before God for you on judgment day. You will. You can be, hmm, you can be in a church that's Philadelphia on fire for God, experiencing revival, and still be a lukewarm Laodicean. And as a lukewarm Laodicean in your pride, you could even become a synagogue of Satan instead of a temple of the spirit and end up criticizing the move of God in your Philadelphian church. And if you do, God will either remove you or perhaps one day even make you come and bow at our feet and acknowledge that he loved us and that what you called weird and heresy was actually God's favor and his spirit moving mightily in our midst. Or you could be a Philadelphian in a Laodicean church and feel like you're going crazy because in your zeal for God, you see how passionless everyone is. And you see that they're giving more time and attention to the things of the world and not experiencing things of the spirit. And if you don't realize who you are in the midst of that kind of church culture, you can feel like you're going crazy, be discouraged, or you might not realize it might be time to move on. And if your lukewarm church family has no intentions of getting all fired up, giving up the things of the world to buy the true faith refined by fire, Uh, giving up time and attention for their hobbies and entertainment to buy time with the word and prayer. Man, if you don't realize that, you might start listening to their advice to, to tone it down, not be so intense, and they'll quench your flame, and then you'll become lukewarm too and be deceived, even excusing it like they do. So you need to personally examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you living by faith? Are you on fire or are you just lukewarm? Are your deeds unfinished in his sight? Are you living to fulfill your calling? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you tending the lamp of God in your life? That's why Jesus told the parable of the 10 virgins who had a lamp, five had oil, five ran out. They didn't bring extra oil. They didn't persevere to the end. That's why he said in Luke 12, 35, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. What's that mean? What's he saying? Tend the lamps continually. Always keep on praying, praying, believing, seeking the kingdom first, tending to your personal relationship with Christ. Why? Because if you're in a church like Sardis, where everyone's compromised and soiled their clothes, you can still keep yourself pure with white robes, ready, set apart for your lover, Jesus. No matter what church culture you're in or how imperfect it is or how much one of your leaders has messed up, you don't have to be a victim because you are responsible for, one of, for your own personal relationship with Jesus. That's why when we see a church that will have its lampstand removed or a leader have a major moral failure in our country or in Christendom or a Christian brother or sister or spouse betray us, We're going to grieve, 
but we won't lose heart because our hope was never in a church or in a leader anyway. It was in Jesus, the friend who's closer than a brother and the one who will never fail us or betray us or put us to shame. And if your faith fails because a church or another Christian failed you, then perhaps your faith wasn't in Jesus after all. Perhaps you were a Pergamum who had married church with idolatry and you were really just in it for the benefits, not for God. God's not into a friend with benefits relationship. He's looking for covenant, marriage, lover. Ones who do not love the world or anything of the world, but love him. Ones whom, even if the world is against them and their friends all fail them and their church closes its doors, they will remain faithful and keep pursuing him and loving him no matter what. Man, if you will keep your lamps burning, church, if you will tend to him, let me tell you, he'll tend to you because Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. He's the great high priest who tends our lamps. A smoldering wick he doesn't snuff out. As it says in Psalm 18, 28, you, Lord, you keep my lamp burning. You turn my darkness into light. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you tend our lamps. And, Jesus, I thank you for tending to this church's lampstand today. I thank you for tending to the churches in this culture I pray that we could burn bright. I pray that we could be a Philadelphia. I pray that we could experience the open heaven spirit of revival, that we wouldn't let the accusation and the slander and the criticism uh, affect us, knowing that you will vindicate us. We don't need to defend ourselves. The word of God defends us. (laughs) So God, we thank you that you give the oil, you trim our wicks, and you prune our vines. (laughs) to keep us burning bright. We thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds and save those who are crushed in spirit. We thank you that a smoldering wick you don't stuff out, but you rekindle the flame. (laughs) If you can bring dry bones back to life, then God, surely you can relight a lamp that's gone out. So I ask you in the mighty name of Jesus to rekindle the smoldering wicks today. I ask you to relight the ones who've gone out. I ask you, God, to set us ablaze. Tend our lamps, Lord. (laughs) But Lord, you stand at the door of our temple of the Holy Spirit and you knock. And how can you tend to our lamps if you won't let us in? If we won't let you in? (laughs) Lord, how can you tend to us if we're so consumed with our culture and the distraction of this world and the worries of this life that we never tend to you? So get our attention today, God. Save us from ourselves. Let all who have ears hear you knocking at the door. Hear what the Spirit's saying. Open up our lives to you today and every day so that you can indeed tend the lamps. We invite you in today, Jesus. We invite you to walk among us and tend the lamps of your church. And I just want to invite you, if you don't know Christ and you want a relationship, you want forgiveness of sin and you want to go to heaven, open up your heart to him right now. He is knocking at your door. Just say a short, simple prayer. I'll have every believer say it out loud with you right now in the name of Jesus. Let's say this together. If this is you, say this with us out loud. Say, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me brand new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me live for you every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.